Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Ron Ehrlich. Dr. Ron is one of Australia's leading holistic health advocates. He has over 35 years of clinical practice as a holistic dentist. He also currently serves as president of the Australian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, is a co-founder of the nonprofit organization Nourishing Australia, and is the author of the book, A Life Less Stressed, The Five Pillars of Health and Wellness. Dr. Ron, thanks so much for coming on for an episode for today. Thanks, Gary. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So I was saying to you off uh, air there how there are so many topics we could talk about. I mean, especially with your book talking about stress and the different aspects of stress uh, that you look at in there. But there's one particular topic I thought that would be really interesting for people today is your personal story and your story of having a diagnosis of prostate cancer and how you've had to deal with that and how you um, managed to cope with the stress of prostate cancer itself. So if you wouldn't mind just introducing people then, um, what is the story behind that diagnosis? Mm. Well, you know, thanks, Gary. I, I, uh, well, writing a book like this, A Life Less Stressed, I, I, I have to almost always preface it by saying uh, this is not autobiographical, it's aspirational. Uh, for me now more than ever, uh, although in a sense it was autobiographical because it kind of traced what I had been interested in for the last 35 or 40 years of my professional life. But uh, when I turned 60, I'm now 64, when I turned 60, I uh, did get a diagnosis of prostate cancer and it didn't come as a huge shock to me, I must admit, because um, my brother had it when he was 60, uh, my father had it when he was 60, my uncle had it when he was 60 and, um, and he actually died of it. Uh, so when I turned 60, I was very keen to get a diagnosis, you know, to establish whether I had prostate cancer or not. Um, and I had and I had a newfound uh, respect for family histories. You know, as a as practitioner, we're always taking family histories and oh, do you have any history of this or that? And kind of note that down very quickly in a bullet point. Uh, but actually, it's far more than a bullet point. You know, family history does count. So I had an examination by my GP and a PSA taken, and it was very low. They couldn't detect anything. I then went to see a urologist because of the GP said. You know, we should maybe explore it further. So I did, and I went to the urologist, and similarly, he couldn't feel anything. And my PSA, I mean, for men, you know, a PSA, uh, prostate-stimulating androgen, uh, my PSA was 3.2, which is quite low, I think. Um, and then my urologist suggested I have an MRI. And if the MRI had come back with just one or two discrete areas, I don't think I would have gone any further because I don't, you know, there are, many cases where prostate cancer, you know, people can live into old age with, with prostate cancer. But, but there were many areas in my prostate uh, that showed up on an MRI. So I did have um, a, a biopsy done and that's no small thing either. That's not something to rush into. But with these various areas on my prostate, I decided to have a, um, a biopsy. And when you have a biopsy, they do what is called the Gleason rating, which uh, indicates how virulent it is. And six and below is, is not really, I mean, six is, is not too bad. 
Uh, seven is maybe hold and watch and wait, and, and eight, nine, and well, eight, nine, and ten, you know, is definitely operate. And mine was around seven and a half to eight. So uh, I, I ended up having a, a radical prostatectomy, which, um, uh, you know, was quite challenging. I mean, as an operation, it, it is challenging because it creates all sorts of issues around incontinence and, and there are all sorts of issues around sexual dysfunction. So, um, you know, this began a, a journey of a few months of recovery and fortunately I have made uh, an almost full recovery. I would say I'm back to about 90% and uh, certainly knew I had a large prostate before which was affecting urinary function and, and now I'm back to where I was in my 20s and 30s on that score. So, so the logistics of it all, but it was very interesting being a patient in that system and it's always interesting as a practitioner suddenly being on the other side as a patient. Now, as a dentist, you know, we're all uh, patients. Every dentist is a patient. But, of course, not every doctor, not every surgeon is a patient. And, um, and so to enter the system is an interesting one in itself because it's very, as, you, as we've come to expect of, of our, our Western medical system, which I am eternally grateful for, I'm not being critical of, but it is essentially a chronic disease management system and uh, it deals with the issue at hand and very little else is offered in terms of uh, any of the things that I actually cover, or very many of the things that I cover in my book. So um, I, I took a couple of months. I, had, I took a couple of months off just to recover. And during that time, I thought to myself, because I really had to rest, um, that I'd write a book. And that was the stimulus for writing my book, actually, because I could sit down for five or six, uh, as it turned out, six or seven days a week for about three months and write. And uh, it was a very cathartic experience because now what I was writing about became um, even more important to me in terms of what I would do. I mean, when you look at the statistics of cancer, um, one in two men, one in three women will contract cancer by the age of 60. So uh, I knew plenty of 60-year-old men, some of which had cancer and some of which didn't. So in a sense, I took a hit for the team. I was one of the two uh, in that statistic. Um, so it didn't come as a huge surprise to me. And when we, you know, we're often told it's because we're getting older that we're getting all this cancer, although I don't consider 60 to be older. Um, and when you look at the statistics, kids' uh, cancer is on the rise as well, and they're not getting older, they're still kids. So we do have a problem. And, um, and so that, that began, well, <clears throat> it didn't begin my journey because actually when you do even more statistics, and this was a very interesting study that I stumbled across in... Um, in my, in my research was a US labor study looking at the 950 worst jobs, or 950 jobs in America, and, and on the criteria of six criteria, I think there were, some of which were exposure to toxins, exposure, exposure to microbes, being seated, exposure to radiation, there were one or two other criteria, and they scored each profession on those six criteria. And some of those professions, as you can imagine, were really, um, well, they were everything, 950. I mean, you've got refinery workers, garbage collectors, you name it. And uh, when it came down to who was number one, two, and three, it turns out that dentistry scores very highly on that. A dental hygienist is number one, a dentist number two, and a dental assistant number three. So there was, there was that. 
Um, dentistry is a very stressful profession. I, I knew that. Uh, I've got my own podcast and I've done various episodes on, for example, vitamin D. I've never done, I've never had my vitamin D levels checked. About five or six years ago, I did a podcast on it, went and had it checked and my, pod, my vitamin D levels were at 30. Now, normal is somewhere between 50 and 100, and if you've got cancer, 120. And I was not doing anything different in the last 20 or 30 years. I looked actually tanned. So there I was, vitamin D deficient. Then I did another program on MTHFR, which is a, a methylation gene. So a very important process the body goes through is taking nutrients and methylating them or making them available to be used, called bioavailability. Turns out I have two genes which don't allow methylations. Uh, and so, um, you know, I wasn't methylating my vitamin B particularly. And, and so there's another one. Every time I did another podcast, I... I checked myself out. I, I did another podcast on men's health and uh, testosterone levels. Who I mean, I, we all have our blood tests done and, and also our doctor orders it, but I've never had the testosterone levels checked. Thankfully, my testosterone levels weren't too bad. But, but, you know, there was so much there that I, you know, my profession, my family history, um, you know, uh, vitamin D is, is, is thought of as the cancer vitamin, so it's been low for probably all of my life. Um, and I live in Australia, you would think, you know, here I am out in the land of the sun, but I spend an awful lot of time in my surgery. So, um, you know, I'm not out in the sun enough, clearly, or absorbing it for that matter. So there were a whole range of issues which uh, emerged. And then it actually was very sobering to have these conversations with some of my male patients. And, um, and that uh, opened up a whole new world to me of other people's experience as well as my own family's experience. And it's a really common male cancer, prostate cancer, and, um, and how you approach it after you've been diagnosed is, is really important. For many people, it's obviously a life-changing experience, but many people, I mean, I would rather never have had a diagnosis, but I'm, I'm always, I'm an eternal optimist. Um, and so I think there are things about a diagnosis which can be life-altering and alert you to the fact that, hey, um, you know, this is getting serious now. It's not just theoretical, it's getting serious. So um, a lot of what I talk about in my book is, is really important uh, to me, uh, uh, particularly, and that's why I say the book is aspirational now more than ever. Yeah, and I think exactly what you said there with the diagnosis being different, um, life-changing your story is a little bit different because you were looking for the prostate cancer, whereas it may come as a huge surprise to a lot of people who just didn't see it coming at all. Yeah. And so did you still, it sounds like you didn't have the maybe the first question I think a lot of cancer patients have, which is the why question. Why me? Why did I get it? Yes. Well, there's another story there too. And I mean, really, I, as I say, the book, and the book involves an exploration of the five stresses in life that can break us down or compromise our immune system and the five pillars of health that can build resilience. And this is all about balance. Um, you know, we live in a real world. So the five stressors are emotional, environmental, postural, nutritional, and dental stress. That's been a model of health that I've been using in my practice for the last 35 years. So um, when I explore each of those, 
and I'm particularly interested in nutritional and environmental medicine. I've, I've got a fellowship in nutritional and environmental medicine. I got that about 20 or more years ago. Um, and I'm also obviously interested in uh, dental stress, and I, we can talk about what that is. Um, and, and I'm also interested in postural stress. Now, you know, in, in that stress model, I, I never really felt comfortable talking to my patients about emotional stress. That's not my, that's not my specialty. Um, I'm, I'm specialising in dental stress. You know, that's what I do. But I'm, I've been aware of all of these stressors for a very long time, and I've explored them professionally personally. And so not only was there a family history there, but it didn't come as a shock to me. In fact, when you look at, for example, the environmental stressors that we are now all exposed to, the question isn't, are you exposed to an environmental toxin? Are you exposed to harmful, potentially harmful radiation? That's not the question for us anymore. The question is, we are all exposed. To what extent does it affect you as an individual? Now, <clears throat> you know, there are literally tens of thousands of chemicals that we are exposed to on a daily basis. And uh, we assume, and as you walk your way up and down the aisles of the supermarket and look at all the labelling on all the packages, you, you would just assume that all these chemicals have been approved and they've gone through all this rigorous testing and that's why they're on the shelf. But actually, when you know the real story, that is simply not the case. I mean, maybe 5%, maybe 10% of all the chemicals, and I'm saying tens of thousands of chemicals that we're exposed to, have gone through any rigorous testing. And by rigorous testing, the way these are typically tested are they a chemical is tested on a student usually uh, over a, um, a short period, six, eight weeks, three months maybe, one chemical at a time. Well, that's just simply not the way we are exposed to chemicals. You know, chemical toxicity is about synergy, not, not an arithmetic, you know, one plus one. If I gave mercury, for example, a toxicity value of one and lead a toxicity value of one, in toxicity terms and environmental toxin terms, one plus one does not equal two. One plus one, when it's combined in the human body, can equal 10. So when you look at the synergistic effect of all the chemicals we're exposed to and then you combine that with the wi-fi radiation which is all pervasive and i'm not sure what it is in happening in the uk but in australia 5g is just around the corner and that is a real concern in 2011 the world health organization classified wi-fi radiation as a class 2b carcinogen which means that it has it is a possible carcinogen Class 2A is a probable carcinogen and class 1 is a carcinogen. So Wi-Fi radiation has been known since 2011 to be that. So, so when I look at all the toxins that we're exposed to, my question, my surprise wasn't that I got it, particularly given my family history. My surprise is, and my surprise is when I hear people don't have it. You know, that is a testament to the human body and its resilience. Yeah, and... I guess I, I think probably the next journey did you have also it sounds like you went straight for the radical option with the surgery there to, to remove things. Did you even consider trying to not have the surgery? I mean, some people are going to be in that dilemma you know, where they'll try yeah. try to look for alternative yeah. sort, sort of solutions with yourself, with your background and, and your and your knowledge base. Um, did you know for you that is the best solution straight away? 
Well, it was really difficult one, and every person is an in, is an individual, you know. So every person needs to make that choice individually, and uh, you know there there was quite a complex. I mean, I looked at the MRI and I saw its proximity. Now, a, 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 a prostate is about the size of a walnut, and it wraps around the urethra. So um, and and it's and it's covered by nerves which supply our sexual organs, right? So um, this is uh, my, when I had the MRI taken, the, the um, cancer had been very close to the capsule of the uh, prostate. Uh, and as I said, if it had just been a little more discreet, I, I definitely, I don't think, I shouldn't say definitely, but I, I don't think that should, um, that would have been the way I would have gone. But there are, there are, I mean, I do other things as well. I did other things as well. And, um, and, and one of the first things that I did, and I had already been on this journey, was I, I reduced my carbohydrate level considerably. I think, you know, when you go, <coughs> one of the things that you do when you have a cancer is you go and have a PET scan to check whether the cancer has spread. And a PET scan injects radioactive glucose into your body because the medical profession know very well that cancer cells prefer glucose. That is their fuel. And um, if you lie still for 10 minutes so that the glucose doesn't go to your muscles, it will then go to whatever organs or uh, where the cancer is. And I was very um, concerned because of past family history that the cancer would have spread to my pelvis or to the surrounding uh, lymph nodes. Um, my uncle, as I said, had died of this. Um, my, father, my father had it, my brother had it. Um, and, and, you know, I was aware that complications could occur within, within uh, the surgery. And they can. I mean, nerve damage is a significant um, uh, side effect of, of prostate cancer. And uh, it raises a whole issue around sexual dysfunction um, you know, erectile dysfunction. So, so you know, this is not... Uh, and when that, when you are confronted with that as a male, uh, well, as a male or female, in a relationship, uh, you, you realise how penis-centric, um, uh, you know, sexual relationships can become. And so, it, it, you know, th this is a very complicated I issue. Um, I was aware of a whole range of things that I could do. You know, I mean, I was very aware of, for example, the Ornish program, Dean Ornish did some excellent research on this and found that on a vegetarian diet and meditation and group, uh, you know, group therapy to talk about these things, you could get some significant improvements. And, and I explored those things as well. Uh, you know, this is not an all or none thing. You know, you don't make a choice. I don't believe you make a choice to go down this path or that path. And if you're expecting the radical path to then support you through the alternate uh, things that are available to you, you're going to be very, very disappointed. You know, the, 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 the profession are very dismissive, you know, not, not dismissive but not very supportive of it. Oh, it's sort of patronising, like, yeah, look, sure, if you want to try going on a diet, do that. You know, if you want to look at your blood chemistry and check your vitamins and mineral levels, well, sure, do that, try that. Meditation, yeah, I'm sure it's good, it's good for us. You know, so... The medical profession are very dismissive of that um, as, a, as a rule and, and, um, and it's a shame because when you com combine the two, um, you can get some very good results.
And it's why I think a lot of people view their diagnosis of cancer as being life-altering in a very positive way. I know that sounds odd. Everybody would rather not have a diagnosis. But when you are faced with it, you know, you can either throw your hands up and be shocked by it all and, and, and fall into the arms of the medical profession with, with their chemo and their surgery and their radiation and kill, slash and burn everything. And I think there is a place for that. Um, but, but there is also a place for supporting the immune system. And, and nutrition is a really interesting example. I go back to the PET scan. <coughs> Excuse me, Gary. The PET scan injects um, radioactive glucose. So the medical profession accepts its diagnostic value. They accept the fact that cancer likes glucose. So would you not think that a logical progression from that would be why don't we stop feeding the cancer and avoid glucose or carbohydrates, which quickly can break down to glucose anyway. But, they, but very few medical practitioners will make that leap. So I think that is a really important step in, in the process um, of, of rebalancing. Um, I check my vitamin T levels and I do that very religiously now. I, I go to see my integrative men's health doctor who does a very broad range of blood tests and looking at my methylation of my B group vitamins and my whole blood chemistry. I mean, another one, and you would know this in talking to various people, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you talk to somebody about heart disease, cancer, autoimmune conditions, and of course, diabetes, but the lower the, the insulin level, the better, which goes back to the way glucose is metabolized in the body. So bringing, those, bringing your blood chemistry back into balance is really important. Um, you know, sleep. I mean, I, was, I, I have been very focused on sleep for the last 15 or more years in my practice uh, because of my own personal experience with snoring. You know, there was another one. I had been snoring for, since my 40s and I had always dismissed it as my wife's problem, not mine until my wife said, this is getting so bad, and this was probably in my late 40s, this is getting so bad, um, you're going to move into another room. And suddenly her problem became my problem because I didn't feel I was ready for that. So I did something about my snoring. And what I realised, and I always thought I slept well, I didn't think I slept badly, um, but, boy, the difference was amazing. And then I started to do research on sleep, and the difference between... I mean, for 90% of the population, um, or more, I believe, um, we need seven to nine hours sleep. So average eight hours sleep a night. That's what we need. That's our built-in life support system, non-negotiable, you know, should be. Um, I was consistently sleeping six hours a night. Now, that was the way it was. My kids, I had kids, I'd go to bed at 12 o'clock at night, I'd wake up at six o'clock in the morning. Um, this was what I was doing. That alone set me up for, for problems. You know, it, uh, six hours a night is a very interesting group of people because people that sleep three to four hours a night know they're not getting enough sleep and score badly on every health measure. People that sleep six hours a night um, uh, think they're getting enough sleep. I was one of those people for the first 50 years of my life and, and, um, and, score, and, the, and, and it doesn't look good when you look at that. So... So, you know, sleep is another one. Um, you know, fasting is another great example 
of, of dealing with cancer that I think is really useful. You know, there's this whole process called autophagy. When you, when you fast, autophagy is the body killing cells, picking up dead cells and killing weak cells. And so fasting is another area. Meditation is another area. Exercise, saunas, detoxing. So, you know, there are all sorts of things that, that we can do. Fortunately, I didn't need chemo. I didn't need any other treatment. As I said, fortunately, I was, I was fortunate to have made a good recovery. I would say a 90, 85% to 90% recovery. Um, and so for me, at this point, four years post-operatively, and I get my PSA levels checked every six months, they should remain undetectable, um, that, that um, they have been that way. And, and the interesting thing about PSA that I think is worth mentioning is it's not so much the absolute value. This is something else that I've explored. It's not the absolute value, like it was 3.2, which was very low. But when I reflected back on it and did the research, the fact that a year or 18 months earlier it was 1.6 and it had gone to 3.2 means the rate of acceleration was about 100%. So that was significant, the velocity of change the rate of change can be more significant than the absolute value. That's a great tip for men. I mean, yeah, anyone listening to this program who either themselves may have a, a recent diagnosis or they have a loved one in their family, you know, these kind of little tidbits too can help. Um, I, I didn't think about that one too. If you actually checked yourself, if you were concerned and you, and you noticed that there was a change in the trend of that number, it's it's more maybe predictable predict predictive then then um as you said the absolute number falling into a certain range there um but but the nutritional part of it is is a really i think the nutritional part the stress part the blood chemistry part the sleep part you know i mean it's that's why i say the book is aspirational now more than ever Mm. and so did you find that you delved more into something post diagnosis so it sounds like did you do more the nutritional route or did you try then change even your, your sleep habits uh, post diagnosis uh, uh, or even some of the other stresses like I'd be interested dental wise because uh, that is one of the stresses did you have to deal with something post diagnostic uh, wise there yeah okay well um, nutritionally uh I mean, look, when I say I wrote this book uh, and in three months that I took off, I had been researching that for two years before. Mm. So, so, you know, and as I said, professionally, I've been exploring these things. Um, The things that I changed were I was far more diligent about uh, the carbohydrate level, Um, you know, because of that glucose, carbohydrates breaking down to glucose. It's not just the white sugar that we're talking about here. It's talking about carbohydrates that break down in sugar. So what is low carb? You know, um, when you look at the research, the research can seem confusing. People can be very dismissive of carbohydrate level in in nutritional research, but you have to look to how they've defined low carb. Some of the low carb studies that are very negative put the carbohydrate level at about 150 to 200 grams of carbohydrate a day. Now, by anybody's measure who is in the low-carb community, that is not low-carb. So, so, you know, I consider low-carb to be 70 grams or less, depending on your exercise level. So, so you know, that's something that I, I definitely try to keep 
as a rule. Um, the other thing that I also am far more diligent about is that I, I fast intermittently. You know, I, I have time-restricted eating where I, I would eat for uh, an eight, a six to eight-hour window in a day and fast for 16 to 18 hours a day. Um, so, it, you know, I think when, when I've been interested in nutrition for, for all of my professional life, the one thing that has changed in the last five years particularly um, is, is this discovery, if you like, that perhaps we shouldn't be eating as much as we do. I mean, and, and I mean, I know it's always been the calories in, calories out story, but that's not what we're talking about here. The fact that we, when in human history did we have three meals a day and two snacks in between? I mean, that just never happened we have evolved to adapt very well to periods of hunger. We should embrace hunger. Some wonderful things happen when we get hungry. Um, as I said, autophagy is one of them. You know, when we start fasting and for an extended length of time, like beyond 24 hours, um, you know, our body starts to clean up weak cells and or, or, or cancer cells, you know. So I think that is a... Is, is something that I have embraced more since I um, had my diagnosis, definitely. Um, the other thing that I've been far more conscious of is um, detoxing. I, I have now a sauna, an infrared sauna in my home, and de dentistry is, is uh, really not as well as the US Department of Labor um, has continues to uh, remind me on an annual basis now um, it's it's uh, not a great profession from a health perspective. And, and that study didn't even factor in the stress component. It's quite a stressful job, you know, to have a person literally lie in your lap with your assistant sitting a hand, you know, an arm's length away for 35 or 40 hours a week and you're working in the most sensitive part of a, of a human being while they're awake trying to breathe and swallow and remain calm while you're doing really finicky work, um, you know, that's reasonably stressful and, and you're dealing with the person's stress. So that doesn't come without its, its effect either. So I've, I've scaled back on my work. I mean, at this stage in my life, that's certainly something I do. Alcohol, now I would always have described, alcohol is an interesting one, you know, to anybody who's listening to this or Gary, if you've done this yourself, going alcohol-free for any period of time um, is an interesting social experiment because you realise how ubiquitous alcohol is. It's everywhere. You know, every celebration, every funeral, every... Um, I've had a bad day, I've had a good day, I've gone out for dinner, come over, have a drink, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, it's everywhere. Uh, and I would have described myself as a social drinker in my life um, and, and there have been times in my life when I've been too social. Um, but but now, I, now I, I know that I cannot tolerate alcohol and so that is another very big thing. I, I, do, I do still have a drink, that's true, but um, compared to what I used to have, I would describe it as about a 10% of what I, or 20% at the very most of what I used to have socially. Um, so, so, you know, there's that. I'm very religious about my sleep um, and I'm trying to incorporate um, meditation. I mean, that's an ongoing thing. Meditation's an interesting one because I, I have some back problems, which is, uh, again, a family history, but also professionally. And I've always found sitting a very uncomfortable position 
to meditate in. Um, so, you know, I just wriggle, I just find it uncomfortable. So what I've found since my, my diagnosis is that being in a rest position where I lie on the floor with my feet up on the couch and a pillow under my neck, oh man, that makes the biggest difference. I mean, I find meditation to be so much easier in that functionally more comfortable position. And it's a great position to relieve stress on the back of the neck. So I love multitasking. And if I can do a great exercise for my back while I'm meditating, and I can actually meditate because I'm comfortable, physically comfortable, that's a win for me as well. So look, you know, and, I, and I'm far more diligent. I've done many programs on my own podcast about Wi-Fi radiation and, you know, a mobile phone does not sit on my body if I can avoid it. I certainly don't put laptops near me and I'm trying to be as conscious of how, how close I am to Wi-Fi radiation as possible. Mm. I'm texting more than ever. Yeah, and I think, you know, also from listening to a lot of the things that you've implemented here, these are simple things in one sense. You know, you didn't need fancy equipment. You didn't need fancy, expensive uh, access to supplements or special dietary needs. You just you naturally lowered your carbohydrate intake, which we I've had multiple guests on we talked about. And, uh, yeah, you can eat a, a very scrumptious, tasty, uh, low-carb lifestyle if you want sleep well, get enough sunshine. I'd be interested there, actually, when you were talking about your vitamin D levels. Do you feel you still need to supplement with vitamin D or do you now try to spend more time outside and multitask because you're outside, you're relaxing, you're walking? <laughs> I try, I try, but I, I, my levels, I do need to supplement and I still do supplement. I supplement with a, a, a vitamin D, vitamin K combo um, and I'm trying to keep my levels up around 80 to 100. Now, when I'm doing really well, I'm, I'm at about 120. So, um, you know, that is, um, that's the score we use now. I don't even know the deciliters per millimole or something like that. I'm not sure of the scale because it's different in the US. I know you're in the UK, um, but, but in Australia, you know, the, the range, ideal range, they say, is between 40 and 90. Um, and, uh, but, but I believe, and, and the integrative doctors that I've spoken to have certainly suggested that with a cancer diagnosis being higher in the higher end of that scale and being 100 to 120 is not a bad thing at all. Um, but you asked about dental as well, and, mm. and I should come back to that. Um, look, I, I think when it comes to dental, uh, there are a few things that uh, I, I think are very important. One is obviously uh, inflammation, chronic inflammation. The two most common infections known to man, woman and child occur in the mouth, that is tooth decay, tooth decay and gum disease, either gingivitis, which is the more superficial inflammation of the pink that you can see surrounding your teeth, and periodontitis, which is the deeper structures that hold the tooth attached to the jaw bone. So gingivitis, and then if it extends deeper, periodontitis is a chronic inflammation that Gingivitis affects 90% of the population over the age of 20 um, and, and uh, periodontitis affects um, something like 45 to 50% of the population and over the age of 60 or 70, that figure goes up to about 70%. So inflammation within the mouth is really important and I have been reasonably diligent about that as a dentist. Um, so I, I've kept my eye on that. But... but I grew up, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, so tooth decay was a problem 
and I have quite a few restorations in my mouth. I did actually have a root canal filling um, and uh, it was done very well um, but by technical standards, but, but uh, what then happened was the tooth was weakened and it cracked and oh, there was a very fine crack somewhere in it because I had, I had taken a 3D x-ray of this tooth and it did pick up that there was some infection around it, so I had that tooth removed. I think, uh, you know, when you, when you have a diagnosis of this, I'm not saying all people with cancer need their root canal fillings removed, but what I am saying is that all people with cancer should have their dental health checked out thoroughly. And by thoroughly, I mean look at the gum health, look at the periodontal health, look at decay, and if there has been a history of a lot of fillings, I think it is worthwhile having a 3D x-ray taken of the entire mouth and having it checked out very carefully because this has been a revelation to me as a dentist over the last five to ten years that where we have taken x-rays to determine whether there was a problem or not. And we take 2D x-rays traditionally, you know, that's what everyone's had. Um, you know, we would look at it and go, oh, that seems fine. There doesn't appear to be a problem. Send the patient off for a 3D x-ray and it is so sobering as a dentist to see what we had dismissed as not being a problem potentially is a problem. And when you've had a diagnosis of cancer, and maybe you know people would say a diagnosis of any, any serious illness, you need to eliminate the dental stress component. Now, people are often surprised when I provide them with that stress model and go, dental stress, what, what is that? I mean, you're only including that because you're a dentist. Well, I include it for two reasons. The first one is, yes, I am a dentist, so I know what I'm talking about. But the second one, I, I include it for anybody with a mouth who is interested in their health but has never fully connected the two. And there are many connections. And most people assess their oral health by going, hmm, nothing hurts, I think I'm okay. And if I'd assessed my prostate cancer like that, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today, I don't think. You know, so, so you know, pain, 95% of oral disease has no pain associated with it at all. And, and that is an important factor um, to consider. So I, I look at chronic inflammation. I look at, I look at that root canal, which I ended up needing to have out. Um, the issue of how I breathe is very important. Am I a mouth breather? Am I a nasal breather? Because being a mouth breather from an oral health perspective, from a body chemistry perspective, um, from a respiratory and breathing perspective is really important. So breathing is another one of those pillars that I very much focus on as well. And are you pro um, uh, tape, mouth taping nowadays? That seems to be quite uh, a new, new trend that's growing. Absolutely, uh, I am, and and uh, and I think you know that raises the issue about what's the problem with breathing through your mouth, and and I think you need to do a little bit of breathing one hundred and one here, where we say noses are for breathing, and noses warm, humidify, and filter the air before we take it into our lungs. When we breathe through our noses, there are five levels of filtration: um, the fine hair in the nose, the mucus lining the nose. Um, the, the, the sinuses and the turbinates warm and humidify the air, the adenoids uh, filter as well, and then the tonsils filter as well. If you breathe through your mouth, you're bypassing the first four 
and relying on your tonsils. So, so children with enlarged tonsils, children with recurring respiratory problems, you know, if they're breathing through their mouth, they're not, warm, they're not humidifying and filtering the air before they can take it into their lungs. When you breathe through your nose, 60% of the body's nitric oxide is produced in the sinuses only when you breathe through your nose. And nitric oxide is a really important body regulator. Um, so, you know, that's a really important and it's antimicrobial as well. Um, you know, uh, if, if you're breathing through your nose, your mouth is drier and you're more susceptible to uh, oral disease because of that. So taping of the mouth is a wonderful thing. I mean, I'll give you an example. I had a patient a few months ago came in for an orthodontic opinion, a 12-year-old girl, and she was sitting, she'd filled out her history form and we spend an hour with our new patients going through history. And in her history, it said she also suffered from enuresis, which is bedwetting. And as a 12-year-old girl, that's a problem. And she'd been to see a urologist, a neurologist, a psychologist. Her parents had spent $10,000 exploring a solution to this very serious problem. She had siblings that were 8 and 10, neither of which um, uh, wet the bed. So it was even more of an issue within the house. Um, I noticed while she was sitting there that she was sitting there with her mouth open and was really breathing at quite a high rate. And, and the average, ideally, apart from breathing through your nose, I believe we should be breathing at around 8 to 12 breaths per minute. Um, she was over-breathing. And, and the enuresis, I said to her, when I heard that she'd been to all these other specialists and I knew about breathing, I said to her, look, I said to her parents, um, you know, I think she's over-breathing at night. I think she's actually hyperventilating. And when you over-breathe, what you do is you... In an extreme form, if I overbreathed now and went, <laughs> that would be hyperventilating, and eventually I'd pump all of the carbon dioxide out of my lungs and, my, and I would faint until my carbon dioxide levels were stored and then I would wake up again. So what she was doing was she was overbreathing at night, pumping out too much carbohydrate, carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide, and that affected body chemistry. That affects the acid-alkali balance in the body and that causes smooth muscle to contract. So her bladder is smooth muscle. So I suggested to her that she use some micropore tape on her mouth at night. Her parents thought this was a crazy idea. Mm -hmm. There is actually a 2015 study in the Journal of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, which I'm happy to share with you, Gary, um, which shows that it's actually a very, a, a quite an interesting uh, effect on mild obstructive sleep apnea, but with this tape on her mouth, it calmed her breathing down. It forced her to breathe through her nose. It corrected her body chemistry and her smooth muscle could relax instead of contract. And so in one night, she stopped wetting the bed, which was quite interesting. Now for adults, a lot of adults don't wet the bed, but they do get up at night to go to the bathroom and they don't often associate that with um, breathing. I mean, there are lots of reasons why you can get up at night to go to the bathroom. Diabetes is one of them. Enlarged prostate is another. A whole range of different reasons. But a very common reason that is often overlooked is sleep-disordered breathing. Getting up at night to go to the bathroom is sometimes, is often, a reflection of sleep-disordered breathing. And that's something that I do religiously myself. I wear an appliance that holds my jaw slightly forward to make sure I don't snore. So 
so it keeps my airway open. But that kept, kept my mouth open a little bit too, so I put tape on my mouth at night. A tip for people using it, don't pull it off in the morning because after a few days your lips will be very sore. Poke your tongue out, loosen it. It's only paper. It's micropore tape. And, and it's, you will be surprised. I mean, I have I, patients have come back. I have two lots of patients with this, or three actually. One that just look at me and think, is this guy really telling me to tape my mouth? He must be crazy. I'm not doing that. It's fine. Another group that give it a go and find that their nose is actually blocked and they need to find out why that is so. And the third group that go, wow, I just couldn't believe that something as simple as this could make such a huge difference. So you can use the tape diagnostically to determine whether you have a blocked nose or not. Because as you breathe calmly through your nose and as your body chemistry corrects itself, and as that nitric oxide is produced in the sinuses, it's nature's natural bronchodilator. So uh, the paradox here is that a nose that you thought was blocked actually unblocks when you breathe calmly through your nose. Um, so, so, you know, and, but if you put the tape on and you go, wow, no, actually, mm, not good, I can't breathe, um, you know, this means your sinuses are inflamed, you need to find out why, it could be a household dust issue, a mould issue, a, a food issue, or there could be structural problems, deviated septum, enlarged polyps or whatever. So you need to explore what that is. But yes, tape, it's, a, it's, it's really good. And there is some excellent science to support it. I actually got a letter, this was quite funny, I got a letter recently when I mentioned that at a meeting and I got a letter from, this is not, uh, the Australian Society of Sleep Study wrote me a letter saying I shouldn't be talking about uh, putting tape on people's mouths, you know, there's no evidence to support it. And um, I had to share with them that 2015 article, which they clearly had missed. Uh, there is evidence, and it comes also from a very long uh, buteco breathing technique. I don't know whether you're familiar with that, but it's a Russian breathing technique. And putting micropore tape on at night is a part of that very good program. Yeah, and it just gets me thinking too, when we're talking about the, the topic of stress, and inflammation, how potentially for some people, it sounds like that could be pretty life-changing, stopping that chronic stress over the over a nighttime period. Like, you, I mean, that story you shared with that little girl there is, is pretty phenomenal. I mean, that's life-changing for her and her family. That, that is huge. In fact, you know, I mean, whether you've had a, a diagnosis of prostate cancer or not, or if you want to avoid diagnoses, the pillar that is without a doubt, I mean, I mean, um, it's been described by Professor Matthew Walker, who's written a terrific book called Why We Sleep. He describes it as nature's built-in, non-negotiable life support system. I mean, it doesn't get much cheaper than a good night's sleep, you know, and breathing, and, and that means quantity, getting enough, and quality, breathing well while you're asleep. And the, the changes that that makes to the rest of your life, you start to make decisions about what you eat better you start to make decisions about whether you'll exercise better. You, decide, you start to make decisions about your life better when you are not tired and stressed. I mean, that's, there's physiology behind all of that. Um, you know, it's not just I'll get a good night's sleep, you'll feel better. Hormone levels improve. Uh, DNA, parts of our DNA that are for the immune system get upregulated. 
uh, for chronic inflammation, you know, our immune systems improve, inflammation is downregulated. There's so many reasons why a good night's sleep, a consistently good night's sleep, is the absolute foundation for any person's health journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, I've really loved this um, story that you've told today too, because again, I, I told it, said earlier, there's so many simple things that we can do. And that's what this show is all about is to think, okay, even if I've had a scary diagnosis that I've, I've got cancer, I'm going to choose the route that I want, but there are other simple things I can do to support my health. And that's exactly what you've been explaining here from nutrition to emotion, to posture, to dental, um, yeah, sleep is a huge element to this. And that's, I, I really enjoyed how you just, you, how you were able to lay them out and they're so actionable again. And the mouth taper was just, maybe that's more advanced because you actually have to buy something, but uh, still, again, that could be life-changing for someone. That can. Look, I think the overall message that I always try and convey is that as our world is becoming increasingly more complex, and there's no question it is, um, the solutions are actually remarkably simple. And and as you say, they're very achievable and they're not expensive. Um, You know, I mean, gee, when you talk about fasting as a nutritional intervention, could it possibly get any cheaper than that? I mean, what does it cost not to eat? My my one thing, uh, warning there about fasting is if you've been going, if you have been, I know your listeners probably won't because I know you've done programs on ketogenic diets and stuff, but, but, um, you know, the, um, to go from a low fat diet, to fasting is not the right way to progress. You need to be on a low-carb diet, uh, you know, and explore ketosis as an experience for a few weeks at least, maybe a month or so in preparation for it because you will find it remarkably simple doing intermittent fasting and, and fast or time-restricted eating and fasting. But if you go from a low-carb, a, a low-fat diet to fasting or time-restricted eating, you're going to find it very difficult. Mm. Yeah, that's a great tip there. So, Ron, um, if someone wants to maybe follow you, find out more about you um, or contact you, would you recommend any social media platforms or any particular places that you would like to share for listeners? Yeah, well, I mean, Gary, I have my own podcast called Unstress with Dr. Ron Ehrlich and there's an app in the App Store where you can access the webinars and the e-courses that I have or you can just go on to drronerlich.com and that's DR. R-O-N, uh, Ehrlich, E-H-R-L-I-C-H, drronerlich.com, and there's lots of stuff there. So, yeah, there's the podcast and, and there's my webpage. Perfect. Yeah, and again, thank you so much for um, willing to pe- share your personal story. I think that um, it's going to help a lot of listeners relate and, you know, um, able to give them new ideas and new inspiration. So, and, and you've done a great job at that, I feel. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary.